Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter. Do some highland games, stuff like that, and just help everybody get really strong. So Nice. This is Dr. Mike G. Nelson, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and I'm Hanging out on about a thousand acres at a relative's place just south of Oklahoma City. Look at you. Wow. Yeah. Big farm. Lots of cows. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Everyone, we're going to do some news and um, just one or two listener questions after the break. But lots of news building up. So keeping you up to date here on this holiday weekend, at least in the States. Um, First, in Iron Radio News, let me just thank a few people and um, offer some info. Uh, Jess, Michael, Merrick, Jason, Jim, and Charles, uh, thank you for the fall donations. Uh, you guys have all stepped up in the last two weeks. Uh, look for an email. Uh, we'll reach out to you and get you a gift like Fortress talks about in the ad mid show. So we'll get you something cool there. We have a little bit of minor things that we can um, – relatively cheaply ship so also those of you who don't have any cash uh, i can appreciate that it's also helpful if you make an itunes review so no cash if you make an itunes review that really helps our popularity through itunes and that's another way that you could contribute keep the podcast going strong so don't forget some itunes reviews if you would Uh, having said that let's get to some of this stuff Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, A lot of it coming from me, of course, is going to be nutrition-related. So we'll do this, and I know Phil has some powerlifting news. There's usually drama among the federations. Oh, yeah. Um, First one, uh, this is from Institute of Food Technologists. Low-carb diets may promote higher calorie burn. Now, I thought this was interesting because not that long ago we were talking about that that study that basically said fat makes you fat. You guys remember that? Like, nope, it's dietary yeah. fat that's fattening. Uh, when it when the rubber hits the road, they did an animal study and they looked at it eight ways to Sunday and they said no, fat is the problem. Um, but of course, it muddies the waters because it makes it sound like they've come to some final conclusion. And that's just not the case, right? There's individual differences and all that sort of thing. So this one swings the other way. Low-carb diets may promote a higher calorie burn. This is a study published in the British Medical Journal. Suggests that strictly limiting carbohydrates and eating more fat may help the body burn more calories. Uh, The researchers recruited 234 uh, overweight or obese adults um, with the goal of losing about 12% of their weight over a 10-week period. Um, so their diets were low cal, and they had moderate amounts of carbs. Uh, of that group, 164 lost enough weight to move on to the next phase. So this is more about like um, 
trying to keep your metabolism on its toes, I think, after you after weight loss, right? After a fat loss phase. Um, so the group that moved on to phase two were randomly assigned to either a low-carb, moderate-carb, or a high-carb diet for the next 20 weeks. So sort of this half-year almost maintenance phase. Uh, the low-carb diet only had 20% of their calories from carbs, and they were good carbs, quote-unquote good, right? Like uh, the usual vegetables, fruits, beans, uh, that kind of thing. They had 60% of their calories from fat, including meats, milk, cheese, and nuts. Uh, and then the other 20% was from protein. And, of course, the other groups had more carbs, you know, escalating amount of carbs above that 20% low-carb marker. After 20 weeks, the low-carb group appeared to be burning more calories, an average of 250 more per day. Uh, I think that's probably significant. You know, that's like a light cardio yeah. session, you know. Um, according to the researchers, the findings support a theory called the, quote, carbohydrate insulin model, close quote. Uh, the premise is that diets heavy in processed carbs send insulin levels soaring, which drives the body to use fewer calories and instead store them as fat. And this has sort of been our mantra, I think, for a, the longest time. You know, Mike will talk about how insulin, you eat the carbs, your insulin's high all the time because of the way we eat now and snack and refined carbs and whatnot in the U.S. at least. And you, you, your flu, fuel selector is always switched to carbs, right, not to fat. So you're burning through some of the carbs you just consumed. Insulin level's always high. Uh, in my advanced nutrition class, I talk about how it's not just an acute thing, but high insulin all the time actually starts to, for lack of a better way to put this, tickle your genes to s promote certain enzymes uh, like acetyl-CoA carboxylase or certain enzymes that are part of your fat-building machinery and high insulin all the time. It's not just acutely storing things. It's actually programming your cells, if you will, to be better fat uh, builders and storers. So um, interesting here that, yeah, they're sort of focusing on carbs as the bad guy because of the hyperinsulinemia all the time so and i think honestly this is one of the things that intrigues me about the intermittent fasting and some of those kinds of cyclical low carb diets right because you're just getting out from under this insulin and glucose burden all the time so yeah 250 more more um calories burned a day when they do their i hate to call it a refeed but you get the idea to fitness people this would almost be like a 20 week Reverse diet after after making weight, so to speak. So, who are the author? Who is the main author on that, Lonnie? Uh, this is just a blurb. So let's see. David Lud uh, okay. Ludwig is one of he's okay. the co-director New Balance Foundation Obesity Prevention Center, Boston Children's Hospital. That's the name I have. So there's a link to the study. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. He's very. Yeah, that kind of fits with his other work, which eh, a lot of his other stuff I didn't necessarily agree with. So I'll, I'll definitely have to check into that one. It sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's it's very much um, the pendulum swinging. You know, I mean, essentially your choices to cut calories yeah. are, are carbs or fat. And I think a lot of it depends on your genetic makeup and your lifestyle and, you know, all that kind of yeah, stuff. How active you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next one, also from the IFT, again, these are just research blurbs. Um this is not that surprising to me. We see this all the time. Anthocyanins in purple corn may help diabetics. And, Mike, I think mm. you and I, on air, we've actually sort of rolled our eyes a bit because yeah. it seems like every phytochemical you can imagine, every spice, every herb, 
has blood sugar lowering effects or some kind of anti-diabetic effect. Um, but here's another one. It says bioactive compounds found in the pigment of purple corn are showing potential to prevent or improve complications of type 2 diabetes. According to the University of Illinois, um, this was published in PLOS One. Essentially, they're talking about these pigments activating novel biological markers uh, related to enhanced insulin secretion or glucose uptake. So uh, Elvira Demeja, M-E-J-I-A, professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at U of I, uh, was a co-author. And there's also some quotes from one of her postdocs essentially saying that they looked at the two biomarkers that apparently are getting activated by this purple pigment. One is the fatty acid receptor. Um, So essentially think about like your pancreatic cells when you eat fat. It will stimulate a little bit of insulin release, not as much as eating carbohydrates, right? But And this fatty acid receptor is one of the things that helps secrete extra insulin. And to diabetics, that would be good, right? For some of us, if you're like on a mass gain phase, that might be good. Um, The other one was glucokinase, which which is a, a trapping enzyme, if you will, in your liver. So it will take up glucose from the blood and trap it, and you get to store it at least temporarily, is glycogen. Uh, so glucokinase for the uptake side. So there'd be less circulating uh, glucose. Now, if I remember right, Phil, did, mm. didn't – wasn't um, Biotest selling – wasn't that the basis of one of their their big oh, yeah. a- anabolic products? Mm-hmm. Is that right? I can't, I can't even remember. It was a few years ago. I'm, I'm assuming they're still selling it. Yeah. Yeah, it was the blue one. It's uh... – Oh, I'm sure people are yelling at their podcast machine right now. <laughs> yeah, there's one. Uh, uh, I can picture the bottle and everything, yeah, too. Yep. I can't remember. Me, the, too. The Me, too. Um, but, I, I, I mean, there was, some, there was some pretty hefty claims that they were making about that, um, especially because it's the kind of thing you see a lot. I don't know. To me, it's almost like eat tons of colorful vegetables, fruits and vegetables. You know, I know it's not going to be quite the same thing as a standardized extract and whatnot, but um, yeah. So, how would this apply to lifters? Well, like I said, you might get some more insulin secretion, you might get some more uptake. I don't know why storing carbs in your liver would necessarily be awesome for a, a lifter who already probably has decent carbohydrate, you know, tolerance. But yeah, it's indigo three G. There it is. Yep, that was it. So, um, yeah, I think this is the idea, the food source of it, you know. So look for those blues and purples, you know. Um, I eat berries, mixed berries, almost every morning for similar reasons. One of my family members over Thanksgiving actually said something about, so what's good about beets and what's good about this and what what vitamins are in that? And I I was trying to explain it's not always about the vitamins. Sometimes it's just the the pigments, you know. It's the colors. They're antioxidant in nature or they – they help your body in different ways, you know, these phytochemicals. Cyanidin 3 glucoside. Okay. Is the compound in it. Okay. I don't believe this talks about specifically which compound it was. It just says anthocyanins. Yeah. Same family, so to speak. Yeah. And honestly, if anybody remembers, when chromium, the mineral, was so popular, yeah. it was yeah. sold for fat loss purposes with, the, again, the sort of vague idea that if you're a better carbohydrate handler, you're less likely to store all that extra carbohydrate as fat, like maybe our first study was suggesting. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I think most of the 
studies on chromium that were kind of supportive were on people who whose micro mineral status and micronutrient status is pretty horrible too. Right. Yeah. As I remember, some of those minerals like vanadium and chromium, the studies in the diabetics yeah. were interesting. But if I remember right, they actually lose more through their urine. So you're almost like correcting like almost deficiency type problems. I don't think anybody's going to argue that these purple compounds and things like blueberries or purple corn are, aren't good for you. You know, I'm sure they are for a variety of reasons. But as far as any kind of dramatic physique type stuff, you know, I haven't. I haven't seen enough like rubber hits the road, real world people being stunned by it, you know, to fully buy in. So what's next? Oh, this is relevant to Thanksgiving, uh, sort of. Changes in types of dietary fats influence long-term weight change in U.S. men and women. So the kind of fat you're eating matters. Uh, and this study supports that. This is by Liu and colleagues, Journal of Nutrition, Volume 148, Issue 11. Brand new. Brand new this month. Uh, it says the relationship between dietary fat intake and body weight remains controversial. <laughs> we just talked about that. Uh, few studies have examined long-term changes in the type of dietary fat and the weight change in a longitudinal way. So looking across time in the same people, the association between changes in the consumption of varying types of fat and weight change was examined every four years, and they did measured multiple things. Um, geez, 121,355 men and women that were free of diabetes uh, or heart disease, etc. So uh, over a 20 to 24-year follow-up. So every four years they checked in. What kind of fats are you eating? How much weight are you gaining? You know, body fat are you gaining? It says a 5% increase in energy from sat fat and a 1% increase in energy from trans fat were associated with a 0.61 to 0.69 uh, greater fat gain over a f per four-year period. So every four years, they were about two-thirds of a kilo, you know, pound and a half maybe, uh, fatter every four years if they were consuming that 5% extra energy from sat fat and trans fat. So saturated fats and trans fats being fattening, as it were. Um, it says the MUFA intake, monounsaturated fat from animal sources, when they increased that by 1%, that was associated with a lower amount of, of body fat gain, 0.29 kilograms. Uh, well, this is overall weight gain. Um, and then it says whereas MUFA, monounsaturates from plant sources, were not associated with weight gain. So they're almost trying to single out that – Monounsaturates from meats are slightly fattening, not as much as the sat fat or the trans, uh, but not from vegetables. Well, to me, that says that MUFA is mm. not the problem, <laughs> right? If yeah. it's it's the other things that they're in those foods, but I I don't want I, I wouldn't want people to think oh monounsaturates from meat are somehow worse for you than monounsaturates from let's say avocados. It's just monounsaturated fat. I don't. I don't really like how they're yeah, saying what's that. The difference? Yeah, exactly. So it, it, that tells me that it's not the mufa, right? And then they go on, and, and I don't like another comment they said. Essentially, um, a five percent increase of energy from polyunsaturates was associated with less weight gain, so negative point five five kilograms. But 
my God, what kind of polyunsaturates, right? This is the thing that used to bug yeah. me like crazy when I would talk to a lot of dietitians. Is they say sat fats are bad and unsaturated fats are good, or polyunsaturated fats are good. But my God, polyunsaturates, that could mean your fish oil pills, or it could mean corn oil in your potato chips, right? Yeah. Not <laughs> the same thing. Not the same thing. Omega-3 and omega-6 PUFA, polyunsaturates, are not the same thing. Um, anyway, their conclusion was replace the sat fat and the trans fat with unsaturated fats, but then they say especially PUFAs. Well, I'm going to revise this. I have no right to, but I'm going to revise this to say replace it especially with omega-3 PUFA. I mean, you can't consume huge amounts like for calorie-type amounts because it's more of a, a dose you know, for the nutraceutical kind of thing. But make sure there's a, a, a good, solid dose of uh, omega-3 PUFA and don't just think that you can eat, you know, corn oil and safflower oil and stuff like that and be immune to weight gain because that's going to wreck your physiology, in my opinion. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, what do you think about that, Mike? What do you think about this types of fat and fat body fat gain? Yeah, I... I, I agree with that because it's it sounds like they're trying to just fit them into the standard mold without doing any sort of sub-analysis. And maybe they didn't have the power to do it or maybe the study wasn't set up that way. But, yeah, I just said, well, are you talking about fish oil? Are you talking about omega-6? Or what are you, you know, what are you talking about? And then even with saturated fat, it gets even more complicated if you're, you know, maybe on a lower carbohydrate diet, maybe you're burning through a lot more saturated fat. So you're probably going to have a different effect there than if you're in a huge caloric surplus and don't exercise a lot. So it's, yeah, it drives me a little bit nuts. I understand why they run the studies because you're looking at one specific thing, but people then tend to extrapolate that into all other sorts of cases that we don't have data or it just doesn't even make physiologic sense. Yeah. I like that. They are trying to break down that the type of fat is important. You know, like I tell students, like they're amazed when I say each fatty acid has its own name, you know, oleic acid, linoleic acid, linolenic (laughs) acid. They're that important, you know, that they have their own name. So they're much more nutraceutical than say just glucose, which is just sort of glucose, you know? Um, Yeah. And I mean, they are pointing at sat fat, uh, this also harkens back to what you said, Mike, the other week about they're talking about as little as a 1% increase in intake from these fats, you know, leading to a couple of pounds of body weight gain every four years. Uh, and you were just talking about that, right? Even very small, like your body's very yeah. good at regulating intake, but a 1% increase in these different kinds of fats could have effects, you know, over the long haul. So. I don't know. Yeah. I don't worry too much about the sat fat thing. Yesterday I was having lots of grass-fed butter with impunity, you know. But um, day in and day out, yeah, I can see that. A lot of the food sources you would choose, like the MUFA, the monounsaturated sources, like avocados and olives and olive oil, sure, right? Go for that stuff. But Yeah, and I think that's part of it, too, where if you tell someone, I want you to, to consume a lot more monounsaturated I hate to use the word good and bad per se, but yeah. there's not as many uh, lower quality mono unsaturated ones. But if you say PUFAs, well, like you said, is that fish oil or is that corn oil that you pulled off the shelf in your grocery store? Those are massively different. Right on, right on. Phil, when you gain, uh, do you keep mm-hmm. any eye on fat? Like, aren't you trying to gain weight right now? I mean, I keep, I, I keep my eye on all the fats. 
<laughs> no, in your mouth. No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, just take it in. Really. Yeah, I just take it in. Yeah. Basically, I do it like everybody at my gym is like, man, all he does is eat like an asshole. Well, they don't see what I do the other ninety percent of the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Basically, I try and just eat good food here, and then I'm always picking something else up. You know, like every time I drive to the gym, I drive, I grab something on the way there, and uh, it's usually not the best thing. But so right, but it's on top of a of a very it's on solid. Top, yeah, so yeah. that's basically all I do is just add on top of of what we normally have. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, so anyway, the reason I'm bringing that up is just because it is interesting that the type of fats that you choose, and like I, I alluded to earlier, it's not like you're going to consume enough omega three fats like DHA and EPA from fish oils to add up to a ton calorically, right? Mm-hmm. It's more of a thing that you. You know, you eat the piece of fatty fish, you eat the salmon, or you pop a few um, double-strength, triple-strength fish oil capsules, and you're sort of dosing it because you're not really going to get enough to have a huge caloric impact on your diet. And that's why the monounsaturates, those olive oil and avocado-type things come in because you can consume enough of those to, you know, supply a, a, a reasonable percent of your calories, you know. So fish oil, things like that are so many uh, structural type uh, effects in the body that you'd have to have just a massive amount, I think, for the body to really use that as an energy source when it's serving so many other, quote unquote, more important effects in the body. Oh, for sure. You don't almost like an Inuit type diet, you know, where so much of what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Seal oil and everything. Exactly. (laughs) But sometimes I think people do get confused about the fish oil thing. Like, oh, most of my fat intake should be omega-3s. No, you can't really do that. You know, it's more like a dosing nutraceutical type thing. You want the calorie sources, look to the MUFA. And here they were associated with a small amount of fat gain, uh, less than, you know, the sat fat and trans fat. Um, And I can actually see some reasons. I'm not going to talk about the energetics, but the way that people burn fat, like beta-oxidation, it, it does differ from sat fat to polyunsaturated fats. Your body has to work a little harder yeah. for the PUFA and whatnot. But, um, yeah, and, I mean, they do say replace trans fats. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that, you know, with with other sources. And to your point, Mike, you're right. The package that the monounsaturates, the MUFA, uh, come in are almost always good. Olive, olive oil, you know, yeah. um, avocado, totally. Uh, when they say MUFA... They almost suggest that MUFA from the animal sources was worse. I think it's worth pointing out, right, that a lot of people think that, oh, if I I eat a greasy burger or a fatty steak, that's entirely saturated fat. And no, no, it's not. You know, almost half of that, like depending on the food, is monounsaturated, you know, Mm -hmm. even bacon. Um, So it's a lot of the Mm. foods, we tend to want to say that things are just sat fat. You know, just one kind of fat, but foods are combinations of these fatty acids. So seek the monounsaturates. I don't think that's that's news, really. Um, and I, like I said, and I would I would add on to this a little addendum. Seek as part of your PUFA intake. Make sure you get I don't know two grams, maybe um, two or three grams of fish oils daily. That's a fairly high dose, but it's gr- greatly more than you're probably consuming if you don't supplement it or purposely eat fatty fish so 
Yeah, and that's EPA plus DHA. So make sure you look on the label, not just the amount of fat, but actual the fish oils themselves. Right, and, and an easy way to do that, I, that's one of the reasons I I alluded to like double or triple strength because, yeah, they're going to double yeah. down on the EPA and DHA and not just random grams of fish oil. So who knows what else is exactly going on in the the oil, what other fatty acids. We're after the EPA and DHA, totally. All right, I'm rambling enough. Let's let's switch gears a little bit, Phil, before we go to break. Yeah. Uh, and let's let's talk about the the powerlifting stuff. <laughs> I've got two more studies. I've got one study on Novadex, actually, on a commonly used bodybuilding abused drug, and one on sleep. But first, I want to hear about like what's happening. Yeah. With the... So the the powerlifting drama of late is USAPL got served a letter from IPF. Pretty much telling them to cease and desist all their drug testing. Um, what? That they are they are, that they are out of line with the rules, and they're not using WADA for all their testing. Um, and USAPL is like, yeah, you're right. We're not. We can't afford it. They said it's more than their <laughs> it's more than their annual budget. So, and they're the only country that's doing um, like testing even at the entry level. So they're not doing yeah. it just a big meet. And they're like, we won't stop what we're doing. And uh, so basically they say, no, we're not going to stop. And they've asked numerous times for their water compliance, uh, what they did wrong, and IPF won't give it to them. Um, They're telling them they need to cease and desist all testing, and they have to reinstate all athletes that they have banned. Um, That's what gets Through their testing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Reinstate them all. they no longer use the words drug-free in any of their – uh, wow. Ads. And, uh, yeah, so there's a whole lot of talk going on in that. And basically, there's several things that people are thinking. It's all kind of hearsay now. But one of the big things is basically that they're, people think the IPF's getting, getting heat from WADA because their biggest affiliate, USAPL, isn't using WADA labs. They're primarily using cheaper labs. Um, yeah. Uh, USAPL is like, yeah, we're not. We can't afford it. And we're the only country that's actually doing testing at all levels. And there's numerous countries. That, why are we getting singled out when there's numerous countries that aren't even turning in their testing each year? And yeah. They're not, they're not doing any testing at all. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So USAPL is saying, screw you. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, so It sounds like they have no choice. I mean, if it's not in their budget. You know, yeah. to go to yeah. WADA labs, then I mean, it's not feasible. Uh, what, what's well, yeah. the alternative? <laughs> they said we can do basically if we do that. Then they said we'll do what everybody else does and only test at big competitions. He said, but then we can't say that it's drug free, you know, because right. we're not testing at entry level. So, and they're like, that's that's what our standards are. That's what we're going to keep up to. Um, we're using cheaper labs at smaller meets, and uh, yeah, and they're saying that that's not allowed and you need to reinstate anybody you've popped because they don't, you can't say which lab it came from. So I, I would uh, argue that, um, any opposition to this regular testing that's being done, they would have to demonstrate that these cheaper labs are bogus in some way. Right. Right. Well, and that's what, that's what USAPL is saying. They've, they've asked for, okay, show me where we messed up and they're not sending them. They haven't, they've yet to send them anything that shows that they were wrong. So, uh, um, yeah. yeah, so that's the oh. drama going on right there, and there's uh, yeah, everybody's up in, up in arms about it, and maybe USAPL will leave, and blah, 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 blah. Everybody's like, oh, there's been a lot of IPF drama of late, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
from there. But correct from, me if I'm wrong, but because they're an entirely separate organization, how does one organization have any rights over the other one unless it was like a trademark infraction or something well, that they owned a trademark that they were stepping on? Well, USAPL is I, USAPL is the American feeder to the IPF. If okay. you want to feed but in an IPF meeting, you have to go through the or not. Yeah, okay. they're, they're, I mean, they're separate companies, but I mean, it's just like, uh, right. what is it, USPA is the feeder program for IPL. Right, so, you know, it's right. it's like in bodybuilding, the NPC is the main feeder into the IFBB Pro circuit. Right. Right, I imagine it's like that. So basically, if, if they they need to go by the rules, but what they're saying is like, we haven't broken any any of the rules in the IPF comp, uh, constitution. So show us where we've broken rules right. in the constitution. We haven't. We're one of the only countries actually doing the testing that you're asking people to do, and nobody else is doing it. We're just we just found a way to do it affordably. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, they said if if we wanted if they did it all through uh, WADA testing facilities, it'd be more than their annual budget. So it almost sounds a little like politics as well, like. We're in bed. We're in bed with the expensive WADA guys, right? So everybody has to do it through our our partner, kind of. Yeah, I don't know. Um, And that's probably what it is, you know. And that's what several people are saying is their guess is WADA doesn't like IPF claiming to use WADA testing, while their biggest affiliate USAPL is primarily using cheaper labs. So. Um, they're probably getting heat from water, so you know, like they say, shit rolls downhill. <laughs> and so yeah, IPF yep. is feeding that over to USAPL and saying, "Hey, you need to stop." But tell them they have to, you know, basically you're going to stop or get banned, and you're out of out of here, and you need to reinstate everybody you've popped. Well, but That's... I mean, USAPL been kind of a joke, anyways. I mean, ever since they, the day they brought on Dana Lynn Bailey as their poster child, and claimed she was drug free. Come on. Mm. Come on. <laughs> you know, she she's a freaking IBBF pro. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Eh. So Oh I mean, boy. I'm not I'm not even saying nothing bad against Dana Ellen Bailey. Nothing bad against anything she's used. But the chances that she has are like ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And and there's there's not that many people out here that are actually in the sport that are stupid enough to believe it. You know, you guys, uh, uh, a few weeks ago when I was talking to Jerry Brain and we were talking about how loaded the word natural is, yeah. and drug-free is similarly very rough. I mean, in today's world, you know, when you can see plastic in, in people's bloodstreams, you yeah. know, and there's pharmaceuticals uh, almost in anything. You know, I mean, like when I do caffeine research, are water. you kidding? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much. I, I really don't like that term drug-free, to be fair. Uh, I, they're going to have to come up with some better term, but we were talking earlier about this, everybody. That what do you what do you say? You can't just even say yeah, performance enhancing drugs because caffeine's a performance enhancing drug. Are they free of that? What if they're on an asthma med? You know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just such a gray area, and to me, it almost feels like in the real long term, WADA is going to have a harder and harder argument and to just to, to stay in existence. I, I would almost think because. Mm-hmm. Technology has just made it too difficult. There's too much of a sliding scale. I, I could be wrong, you know, and people might disagree with that. But drug-free, that's a hell of a claim, you know, regardless of the lab you're using, you know. But. Yeah. I mean, water kind of 
a few years back with the whole back test in the Olympics kind of screwed themselves too. I mean, that's just oh yeah. They keep shoving um, their foots in their mouth. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, uh, especially with all this stuff, like the the movie Icarus that came out from yeah. what you know Russia was doing and how many, you know, that they passed and just the whole program they had going back decades to test athletes and see how far they could get them and get them to pass in the Olympics. And they had you know documented data on it too. It's just yeah, it's like holy crap. <laughs> Yeah, you know, to me, it's it's a, just a technological arms race um, between WADA trying to detect things, the athletes using masking agents or different cycles or novel meds, you know, kind of thing. And it just becomes a technological arms race trying to of one-upsmanship, I guess. But here, yeah, they're even Especially complaining. Especially when you're not doing random out-of-competition testing. You know, you know exactly what period of time you're going to be tested if you're not doing that, and that just makes all those sorts of other things just possible. Yeah, yeah, yep. Well, and that's the, like you know, this is on a whole another subject, but you know, with the rule changes in weightlifting now, you know, it used to be basically countries earn spots for their weightlifters, so through points, but you could send whoever you wanted. So, like, you could send 10 athletes to earn spots and then come to the games. Okay, well, now we're sending these guys, not the people who actually earn the spots. You get a, you got to choose whatever spot you wanted. Oh, my. Um, oh, you got I to didn't choose. know that. Yeah, so that was the rules before. So you just earned spots, and then it wasn't athletes you earned. You earned a number of spots, and then you could fill those spots mm. with whoever you wanted. So they would take athletes that were clean, earn spots, and fill those spots with yep. people who hadn't been clean for <laughs> Unreal. four years. Wow. You know, so they just had to clean up for the Olympics. But now they've changed the rules to where you have to, you have to be in a tested competition like once every three months, and you earn your own spots. So, which is that was a smart move. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> yeah. you could just have, you know, Olga, she's just competing at home in the garage for four years, you know, crushing <laughs> records, <laughs> and, and then okay, send her the games, clean her up, you know, for four months. Right. So. Yep. Okay. All right, let's go to break, everyone. Uh, we come back. We've got a little bit more news, and then uh, we've got a, a question or two from listeners, and we'll be back. Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, 
$4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. We are back, everybody. We're going to take a listener question. I'm pulling it up right now, but I will uh, kind of ad-lib this. It's, it's from Jeff, and he was wondering about unilateral training and how to address this. He has one leg. I think it was left. is a full inch smaller than his right. Um, so he's just how would, how would people go about changing this and just any ideas. So, Mike, you can go, go first. Yeah, did he say? Is that upper leg? Is he talking like quad and hamstring? I'm guessing, or yeah, it didn't specify. Looking at it, he posted a picture, and it looks. Oh, like, okay. 
uh, to me, from the looks of it, down near his knees, not the big of a difference. You get about halfway up and then into the hip, and it's quite a bit bigger. So, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I would look at just a very simple assessment first just to see how well the muscle is quote-unquote firing or activation, even though I know all those terms are just abused to hell back and forth. Yeah. Um, but you know, is it just at a base level what's going on maybe from more of the neurologic system? Does he have an old injury? <laughs> Obviously, it's probably not dramatic enough that he had a pinched nerve or something like that, but you know, sometimes if you impair the nerve, you get a pinched nerve to a muscle or you've actually had physical trauma to it, You'll see massive muscle atrophy super fast, so probably not what's going on. Um, after that, I would look at uh, simply quad versus hamstring. So you could even do a left leg on a, a leg extension versus right leg on a leg extension, see how much of a difference there is, or hamstring curl. Uh, doing compound lifts gets a little bit more dicey because you're probably going to have a weight shift, but I'd be interested, is it more quad or is it more hamstring? That gives you an idea of what to specifically target then. So if I have clients like that, I will just work the crap out of the left side. Like I've had people do left-sided only work for four, six, eight, twelve. I've had some people, myself, I've done sometimes for up to a year. Um, And I think in general people are afraid to do more work on that side. So the classic thing is, well, here's how you fix it. Start on your left side and do unilateral work. Work your right leg and then end on your left side. Okay. You had one more extra set. Is that really going to make a massive difference over time? Probably not. So I've had people who are really goofed up, myself included, only work one particular side in an entire session sometimes. You know, maybe you do a squat and then, okay, you're only going to do left-sided unilateral work. Um yeah. Another thing I like to do is get a little bit fancier in compound lifts, especially like a deadlift. You can do like a stagger stance or a, what I call a B stance. So left leg is flat and then take your right leg, drag it back so that the ball of your foot's even with your left heel. But if I watch your knees on a deadlift, it looks identical. So what am I doing? I'm making the base of support more stable on the left side. To start with a light weight and to purposely overload your left side more on a kind of a compound lift. Um, yeah, so that's what I would do and just, you know, see how you respond from there. What are your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, I agree on that. And then also, I mean, I think just on your, your compound movements is be cognitive with them. Yeah. With all your warm-ups, are you loading your right side more? Or the the bigger side, most likely you are. Like that was an you issue are. I had. Right. <laughs> that was an issue I had with my uh, after my hip replacement. I had to teach myself to load the other side again because for like seven years, due to pain, I was loading mainly the the good side. So the the, mm-hmm. the bad side shrank a lot. So in all my warm ups and things like that, I I just I'm very cognitive about okay, load the left side, load the left side, make sure it's firing. And then once it gets heavy, I don't have to think about that much because I did all that in the warm-up, so now it's working. So, um, and then, yeah, like you said, really attack that. If it's, if it's bothering you, I mean, then attack that one side. Like for me, I'm not too worried about that side being being smaller now because it's not him inhibiting my performance. Um, yeah. So I don't notice it in my big compound moves, and that's my job. My job is to move big weights over a short distance for one time. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
it's not like I'm stepping on stage. You know, if I was stepping on stage, yeah. oh man, dude, his quad is really a lot bigger. Well, then that, that would mean something. I don't have to worry about it too much as long as it's not inhibiting my performance, the way I move. Uh, then I'm okay. So if if that's the issue, say don't worry about it. As long as it, as long as you're, I would check your performance and and go from there. But do a little extra work each day. And call it good. So makes sense to me. Yeah. Sometimes I've used a cue of like with myself too of. My left side tends to be weaker than my right, especially lower body. So if I'm doing a squat, making sure the squat looks kind of symmetric, if my goal is to try to even that out, quote-unquote. And then I'll use a cue sometimes of, this is from PRI, of like trying to feel my left arch or feel my left foot into the ground. And I won't worry so much about the right side, but I'll do, like you said, warm-ups and some lighter work, really trying to work that left side more. And, you know, anecdotally, that seems to help too. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I mean, that's what I concentrate on is just to be my left side. Just, okay, just make sure it's working. The right's going to do its job. It always does. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I didn't hear the, the very beginning of what was said here, but my only concern would be, is there an underlying reason? Like, if you're really yeah. um, asymmetrical, is there a neurological reason or what you were just saying, Mike, about, like, thinking about pushing off you know the arch of your left foot like my left knee since i blew it out two years ago i'd be you know what do i do about that i mean that leg's going to be a little bit off for a reason you know i have structural problems in that joint now you know that kind of so neurological or joint stuff i think you got to maybe think about that as well i don't know if it's going to change that much like if you get the green light to lift everything you guys said still holds but I do think it's worth at least thinking about the what's the etiology? You know, what's the underlying reason? Is it something just is it more than genetics or more than something that happened a long time ago? You know, like it happened with Phil, you know, that kind of stuff. It's probably worth thinking about why is it like that too, you know. But Yeah. Especially if you've had an issue for a long period of time. So like a lot of my <clears throat> issues and movement stuff is related to paradoxically my eye position. So my right eye sits up and out farther i don't see in 3d so because the body physiology is so visual based uh, i've had scoliosis all sorts of stuff because my structure is trying to sort of spin around my vision to make the world even to my brain so if you've got something that's kind of been there all the time i'm looking at either is it possibly an eye thing a vestibular thing uh, like phil obviously old injuries are going to make a massive difference or is it something that just has started to happen like two years ago? Mm-hmm. So that I'd want to know, okay, what happened two years ago? Did you get injured? Did you change your training? You know, what, what went on at that point? You know, it actually begs the question. If somebody has a very specific health reasons reason why one side is is much smaller or even, mm-hmm. a, even on like a bilateral way, you know, like in a bodybuilding competition – I, I would actually wrestle with that. Like if you know one, if you're in a car accident and you tear, tear up your left calf, uh, is it okay to get an implant so you're even? Now in a bodybuilding stage, people are gonna be like, "Hey, that's a fake calf," you know. But but then you've got the argument, <laughs> yeah, but it looked fine before. This was an accident. This is a medical thing. You know what I mean? It almost begs the question. But then if you, it, that's a slippery slope because then you had have people get all these silicon yeah. fake pecs and you get guys with no calves. Um, there's a couple of guys locally here, gigantic arms and chest, calves of a small child, you know, 
Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry, dude. I, you, you're superior in the upper half, and sometimes these guys win events, and I'm actually against that, right? You're not complete. I mean, if the standards are such that you're supposed to have calves, you can't just have extra big biceps or pecs, um, you know, when I can pick my teeth with your lower limbs, you know? I mean, I'm never going to be a star in the NBA because I'm not seven foot tall, and no one is lamenting that, right? I, I'm not that tall. It's not going to happen. So, um, but yeah, sometimes it does make me wonder on the medical side, you know, uh, does a tragedy just put you off the stage? I don't know. Maybe it should. Maybe it shouldn't. It's just one of those ethical, you know, debates maybe. But anyway, all right, that's sort of a, a tangent. Let's get to this last two little bit uh, bits of news. One's on hydration. I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't discuss this yet. Uh, I just thought it was weird. And one is on the anti-estrogen tamoxifen, right, or Novadex. Uh, but anyway, the first one, shorter sleep can lead to dehydration. I had never heard this before. Um, it says researchers looked at how sleep affected hydration status uh, in U.S. and Chinese adults. So it says adults who sleep just six hours per night as opposed to eight may have a higher chance of being dehydrated, according to a new study by Penn State. Uh, results of the study were published in the journal Sleep uh, this month, earlier this month. Uh, the general idea is that there's a hormone that some of our listeners are probably familiar with, antidiuretic hormone uh, or also called vasopressin, uh, and it's released to help regulate your body's hydration, right? So antidiuretic, it's, it puts the brakes on urination, so that keeps you from becoming dehydrated, hence the name antidiuretic hormone or um, vasopressin. It says it's released throughout the day as well as during nighttime sleep hours, which is what the researchers focused on. Uh, let's see. Here's a quote. Vasopressin is released both more quickly and later on in the sleep cycle, said lead author Asher Rossinger, assistant prof of behavioral health at Penn State. So if you're waking up earlier, you might miss that window in which more of this hormone is released. So with less antidiuretic hormone. You would, in fact, diurese more. You would urinate more. You could become dehydrated more. I had never heard anything like that before. Like, it's another reason to try to get enough sleep, I guess. Um, so, weird stuff. Mike, have you heard anything about this before? Uh, not too much, really. I mean, I think that's it's pretty interesting. The more we're learning about sleep, the more we realize how important it is and yeah. Now we're actually seeing a lot of people talk about uh, sleep. Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, is really good. Uh, Dan Party's got a lot of good stuff on sleep. The only thing I don't like is that for most clients, it's not super actionable, super important, but trying to get them to change their sleep habits kind of gets into more of their values and other things like that. But, yeah, the more we look at sleep, the more research comes out, the more we realize how important it is. It's interesting that it might be a mechanism, you know, the way people feel like shit after getting poor sleep. It yeah. says dehydration <laughs> negatively affects many body systems and functions. Again, the dehydration aspect of this, uh, including cognition, mood, physical performance, and other systems. Um, so, yeah. Um, in fact, even in the coffee research we've been doing, it, it almost felt too positive because what happens acutely in the gym is almost entirely good, <laughs> quote, unquote, uh, but but my concern is we we weren't looking at what happened that the subsequent night, you know. So uh, one yeah. one tool that we use 
which you can Google and find online, listeners, is the PSQI, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. It's essentially a short, short questionnaire that uh, asks you various things about your sleep over roughly the last month. So it's not just a one-night thing, but it could give you some information if you can interpret it carefully. Uh, and again, I, I'm sure the researchers would say, no, no, you have to have this interpreted by a skilled person. Okay, so there's my caveat, right? There's my disclaimer. But the PSQI or even just sleep satisfaction, like a Likert scale, you know, one to seven from low to high in your training log might be helpful. You know, so you can say, oh, look, you know, this has been ongoing for at least a month. You know, oftentimes you'll go to the doctor and, and she'll say or he'll say, how long has this been going on? And if it's in your training log, you could actually find out. You know, but there are subjective sleep scales that I think are are pretty neat way to do some of this as well. But that one alarmed me. I got to say because six hours it says that's basically what I run on this semester. Yeah. So, all right, last one, everybody. This is um, by Nuran Amin from LabRoots.com. Uh, brand new. I mean, this is literally two days old. Breast cancer drug tamoxifen brings hope to muscle disease. Now, I wasn't aware that this anti-estrogen, right, this estrogen receptor blocker is what I believe tamoxifen is. Um, I'm trying to remember. But had a lot of impact on muscle tissue. It was mostly just to try to reduce the amount of estrogen in the body. And, of course, a lot of our listeners know that um, – bodybuilders or powerlifters who take testosterone, it could aromatize and they could have extra estrogen and they could get breast tissue formation and all that kind of stuff. Gyno, right? And tamoxifen is something that athletes will then stack onto their polypharmaceutical cycles to try to reduce the effects. But this is being used uh, to target muscle itself. It says, let's see, uh, latest research has indicated that tamoxifen, again, Novadex is a brand name, may hold the potential in treating uh, diseases such as, here it is, myotubular myopathy by slowing its progression. Uh, it's a genetic oh. disease that affects males. Myotubular myopathy weakens all the skeletal muscles from birth. It hits 1 in 50,000 male infants, says Professor Leonardo uh, Scaposa at the School of Pharmaceutical Science at UNIGE Faculty of Science. Um, it says the molecule uh, that we're talking about here is tamoxifen, and because it has long been approved for breast cancer, and again, you might guess why, right? If you block the effects of estrogen, then breast cancer, at least the estrogen-sensitive types, are going to be starved of that hormone. Um, long approved for breast cancer, investigators are hopeful that transition to clinical trials for myotubular myopathy will not take too long. It says tamoxifen has long been studied to be an antioxidant, an antifibrotic, that's interesting, and most importantly, mm. protective of mitochondria. Now, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I read some interesting stuff recently that mitochondria have a role in fighting diseases in, in ways that I had no idea. You know, I tend to think as an exercise physiologist or nutritionist as mitochondria being, you know, little furnaces in the cell where you burn carbohydrates and fats. Um but uh, apparently they can even help you fight diseases in, in different ways. But, yeah, uh, protective of mitochondria. There's a video if you go to labroots.com if you want to learn more about tamoxifen. They're not going to talk about the way strength athletes <laughs> use and abuse it, I'm sure. But um, 
In a previous study, we used tamoxifen against Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is also an inherited muscular disease that affects one yeah. in 3,500 boys, so more common. Uh, and the life expectancy of those boys is 30 years, says PhD student Elanam um, Gayi, G-A-Y-I. Uh, at the same School of Pharmaceutical Sciences. The results have been excellent in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and clinical trials are now in progress. So, I don't know, just a, a little um, news tidbit there about a, a pharmaceutical that has long use, history of use slash abuse in strength and muscle sports, and now they're using it not just to block the effects of estrogen, like with you know something like gyno or you know abnormal breast formation, but um, protecting against muscle diseases and their progression. Interesting stuff. Do you think that's because it's modifying estrogen, or do you think that drug is having some other interactive effect where it's beneficial in this case? That's a very good question. If you block the effects of estrogen, does that automatically protect your mitochondria, or is that automatically uh, anti-fibrotic? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's the sole mechanism. Uh, my gut tells me, and this is complete speculation, that it might be more than just that. You know how they fight all, always, it seems like, too. yeah, with drugs, right? Oh, we're using it for this, and look, it helps with that, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Like yeah. it, like Viagra, right, or things like that. Interesting history. Yeah. Use, use it for one thing, and oh, look, it does something else. <laughs> So, yeah, Viagra was initially targeted as a cardiac med to yep. try to increase blood flow to cardiac tissue. That's right. And they found other side effects. <laughs> right on. Yep. Well, and let's face it. I mean, uh, what is it, Cialis? Or, Phil, didn't you say that you mm -hmm. were aware that a lot of lifters were using that? And, and yeah. again, that starts as erectile dysfunction, and then they're using it for yeah. muscle blood flow, right? Yep. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, additional benefits here out of uh, Novadex. This is an old drug. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I find it interesting. All the older drugs, we find more and more use for them just because they've been out longer. Mm -hmm. um, it's which makes me think that it's drugs are not the silver bullet that we think they are. They probably do something which is very well studied, but I think we underestimate all the other effects they have. Which in other cases could be not quote unquote side effects, but could have other beneficial effects, especially in specific pathologies. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about a simple. Um antihistamine the same drug is sold as a sleep aid and to dry up your drippy nose right completely different yeah. you know um labels and purposes but exact same drug like diphenhydramine it's the same med yeah uh, i'm looking at the structure of novadex right now it does not look particularly oh. like testosterone or estrogen in its structure um, but anyway, if people want to go look at how it works, there is a, a video here on labroots.com. Could be uh, neat. So We don't often talk about new drugs. And when I saw that, I just thought, yeah, have bodybuilders stumbled into something that maybe in some weird way, I don't know, as they age or who knows what. Because, again, these are in genetic diseases. But augmented their muscles in some way they're taking it to block estrogen so they don't get quote unquote bitch tits right and in in some weird way it's actually augmenting the aesthetic look of their muscles it makes you wonder you know you wouldn't think it mm -hmm. yeah. all right we yeah. have rambled on cool stuff so sounds good that's a holiday wrap and we all will right. catch up next week talk to you later all right see you guys 
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.